Hello and thank you for joining us for the penultimate episode of Get Lost in Great Film from View Entertainment. I'm James King. In this series, we're asking film buffs from either side of the screen about their five favourite film moments. And in each episode, we'll be discussing a new genre to find out how cinema can inspire our creativity and open us up to new worlds, immersing ourselves in hours of uninterrupted bliss. Today, we're getting lost in film soundtracks with award-winning composer Rachel Portman. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. And I've had a quick look at your five film and film score choices. We've got some great ones there. Plenty to sink our teeth into later. But first of all, I suppose a lot of people want to know a bit about being a composer of film soundtracks and exactly what that entails. I suspect it's one of those things where each job is different. There may be certain familiar things with each movie But then at the same time, you're dealing with a different story each time. You're dealing with a different director each time. So is there any kind of consistency in your job or is it always different? Um, It's a really good question, that, because I think part of the world of being a film composer is managing the difficulty of setting yourself into a new scenario each time. And you get better at it the more you do it. It's getting to work with very different people, with very different, you know, like directors all, all have very, very different sensitivities towards what is good music or what isn't and some come in with very fixed ideas and others are really looking for a helping hand and so as a composer for film you end up being a bit of a psychologist so you don't think you could do what you do and be a recluse be someone who doesn't like mixing or talking to other people you need to have that communicative skill I think you do although I think naturally composers often are quite reclusive and they do tend to sort of like squirrel away and they don't tend to hang out with each other that much I mean talking very broadly you know really generalizing here um, and it's great when you do meet other composers because there's all this sort of common ground you share but most of the time you're on your own or certainly I am because I I work on my own um, you are writing music which is serving a film and you've always got to remember that So you've got to really pay attention to all the signals and signs and, you know, collaborating with the producers and director. The director is is your main relationship. Well, let's start off with your first film. And this is one of the great collaborations between director and composer. In fact, Classic FM describes it as Hollywood's greatest collaboration. Uh, This is, of course, the collaboration between director Steven Spielberg and composer John Williams. 28 times they've worked together and counting I'm sure there'll be plenty more Uh, but your choice was number 19 uh, came out in 2002 Uh, catch me if you can now there are so many Spielberg John Williams collaborations to choose from I don't know how you could actually choose out of those 28 but why did you go for catch me if you can I love catch me if you can I love that score because it's so original and so um it's so funny And I just love the intrigue that um, Williams is playing with in these little figures on clarinets, sort of weaving between thirds. It's just so imaginative. He sometimes is able to capture something in a melodic cell, which is just brilliant. And I love that score. I think it's wonderful. I could, by the way, have chosen Schindler's List as well, which I thought was, was deeply, deeply moving. 
I mean, that's the brilliance of John Williams in that he can do both. He can do something that's really moving and he can do epic. He can do, he can do so many things. But I suppose I, you know, catch me if you can. It struck me as something that I, I always think, oh God, I love that score. It's just brilliant. Yeah, so he's he's someone who definitely has his own sound, and we we can think of you know Raiders of the Lost Ark or Harry Potter or ET or whatever as the the great sweeping John Williams scores. But occasionally, as in Catch Me If You Can, he just comes up with something slightly out of the ordinary for him, and it and it just stands out as I suppose having some distinctive John Williams qualities, but at the same time different to the majority of his other scores. And I would imagine because of that. You know, certainly in my own experience, he would have loved writing that because it's different from, you know, being asked to do another of a certain kind of film, you know, and to be able to step outside of that and say, actually, I can do this too and have fun and play around with that, I think is great. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's got a kind of uh, Pink Pantherish feel at certain points, hasn't it? That sort of 60s retro jazzy saxophone type thing. Definitely. No, it's very, very cool. It went with the design of the film as well. It was just like brilliant. And in terms of relationships with directors, I mean, I I suppose the Spielberg, John Williams one with those 28 films is unusual. Um, Do you think that actually, uh, I mean, that works. We know that Williams and Spielberg is a thing and that, that works. But do you actually think that sometimes it's good for directors to use different composers or indeed composers to work with different directors just to keep that, that hunger going, to not get complacent? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it depends how versatile a composer is, the one that you're teamed working with. And, you know, John Williams is incredibly versatile. You know, and as composers, we like to think that we can do lots of different things. But then on the other hand, we're often typecast. Do you think you're typecast in a certain area? Yes, I do. I, I think I do. I think I've, I've been slightly typecast, I think, for doing female-driven emotional dramas. Um, I wonder why. I have no idea. Well, you won the um, Oscar for Emma, so I suppose that's that's going to be something that lodges in people's brains, isn't it? Yes, I was joking. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah, completely, completely. But I also, I mean, I, I have at times been typecast for comedy and sort of quirky, quirky comedy as well. Drama and period drama uh, are, are probably the areas that I would be most known for, but not, not exclusively at all. And when you're doing um, a period drama, do you think it's useful to go and listen to music of that era? I tend not to do that. In the same way that if I'm writing uh, the score for a Chinese film, I won't try and emulate it because I'm not, I'm not if, 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 if I've been asked to write the score for it, I'm going to write a more Western-inspired score, but I might include an air who a Chinese violin or, or various instruments of the period. But it's quite fun not to be tied by that. And how do you feel about when the score is deliberately anachronistic and maybe it's superior drama, but there's, you know, electric guitar in it or something like that, when, when that's a deliberate choice to move the music out of the era? I think it can be really great if it works. It's a taste thing, though, you know, and um, if it's brilliantly done, then I think it's great. And mostly these things, these kind of things are. Um, I like boldness. But like anything, if music becomes really distracting and, and it's somehow jarring or it takes you out of it, then no. So it's, I mean, it's a fine line to tread, really. Talking about female-led dramas and period pieces, our second film 
goes back to, well, it was made in 1967, but goes back in terms of its uh, setting way before that. This is the Thomas Hardy adaptation, Far From the Madding Crowd, John Schlesinger, the director, uh, Richard Rodney Bennett, the composer. I tell you what, watching this again the other day, has there ever been a better looking couple than Julie Christie and Terence Stamp? Wow. I'm incredible. I know. I love this film and I love the book. I love Thomas Hardy and I love the, the, you know, the Dorset countryside. And I've always loved this score because it's, it's sort of embedded in that countryside. My family's roots come from Dorset, and, and I think that's part of a, the, the appeal for me. But I always, I was always haunted by that score ever since I first heard it. So, yes. uh, I mean, certainly the opening theme—it's so kind of airy and spacious—and you've got all the views of the Dorset countryside. I think you've even got birdsong mixed in with the music, and so immediately you're just in this wonderful kind of pastoral setting, aren't you? I mean, it's so evocative. Yes, pastoral's the word actually. Pastoral's a really good word for it. And, um, you know, Richard Rodney Bennett has such a wonderful way with melody. There's quite a lot of folk music in it too, that film. Um, but it kind of shows how folk songs back then were community singing and they bonded the villagers together, really, wasn't it? Obviously, pre-pop music, people would sit around and sing folk songs together. I quite like that element of the movie. It's wonderful singing together. I mean, you know, we don't really do it. People always say, and I'm always thinking I should join a choir of some kind, it's a wonderful thing to do together within a group. We don't do it enough. And you mentioned you loved the Thomas Hardy book. Again, I suppose it's like the question about listening to music from the era. Do you feel the need to read the book if it's a literary adaptation? Yes, I, I, I always do if it's a literary adaptation. Yeah, and I really enjoy that. I mean, you get so much more from it, from a book, even, even if the director is doing something very different from it. So like in Chocolat or Cider House Rules, you know, there are moments in the book which inspire you for your score. Yes. I mean, I think what you're doing is you're trying to take in as much information and material as possible. And then it sits somewhere at the back of your mind. You know, there are things, there are particular things that would move you or you'd be struck by. And somehow that all comes out in the wash, in the writing, in some, in some way. It's like starting any project... I'm kind of hungry for all, all that I can absorb. And then I sit down and I write once I have all that material. And obviously the most important thing being the discussions with the director and the film itself and spending lots and lots of time with the film, getting to know it, getting to know the scenes where music needs to be written. How did you get started? I was, I'm, I'm classically trained. I did a music degree at Oxford. And when I was there, I did lots of uh, student theatre and then... A bunch of students got together and made a film with the, that was a very much a student film, um, but it was a full-length feature film. And funnily enough, John Schlesinger came and gave his blessing and was, was really encouraging for it. And um, it got a sort of small cinema release. It was called Privilege, and it had Hugh Grant in it. Who was oh, con- wow. He was a contemporary of mine. And um, he wasn't the main part in it. But um, And when I did that, I thought, right, well, film is much more exciting than theatre. That's what I thought at the time. And um, there's far more opportunity for music. And I loved writing music over the moving image. It was just so exciting. And so, you know, age 21, 22, I figured out what I wanted to do. I mean, I'd known I'd wanted to be a composer, but just not what kind of composer. And so 
that's how I got started. That's a very specific way of doing it. When people ask you for advice about how to get into the industry, I mean, that's that's how you did it. But is there a is there really an answer, or do you just have to be very very general? Um, it's, I mean, it's very really different now. Now you can go and study it. You can go and study film composition, and that's the sort of go to place for up and coming film composers. The most I can help young people, I would say, getting as much experience as you possibly can on small films, you know, anything. Yeah, I'll write the music for this. Yes, I'll write it for that. Because it's all about developing relationships and being able to write lots and lots of, you know, different things. Let's move on to your third film. We stay in the 1960s. This is 1962. uh, And another literary adaptation, To Kill a Mockingbird, based on Harper Lee's seminal story, directed by Robert Mulligan, with a score by the great Elmer Bernstein. Mm -hmm. An Oscar-nominated score as well. Um, Tell me about this one. I love this film, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Elmer Bernstein, but To Kill a Mockingbird, he understood the innocence of the children in the story, and it's, it's a very, very touching score that embraces the innocence, and, and very serious as well. There's that kind of nostalgic feel that it has because it has the voiceover as well, doesn't it? Looking back on the events. Yes. But then there's also a melancholy there as well because after these events, those children will never be the same and they won't have that innocence anymore. No, it is. You're completely right. There is a nostalgic element to it. As I mentioned, it was Oscar nominated, this score. Um, You won for uh, the score for Emma. Um, Yes. First female composer to win. Yes. What do you remember about that night? So this was 1996, 97? Yes, that's right. What do I remember about that night? I remember an extremely long walk and having a cameraman sort of walking backwards with a camera, sort of I had to walk just in front of him and he was going far too slowly. And, you know, the clapping was still going and it was miles to the stage. I mean, it was like, sort of, it was like a football pitch, the other side I had to get to. I remember that and, and also absolute shock. And then the extraordinary feeling of, well, I had felt this anyway, but being invited to this huge party and, and really being someone who's really quite behind the scenes. You know, and I was young and it was, it, I was really surprised and, and, and it opened doors for me. And then you went back for the following nominations? Yes, I did. I went back for two more, for Chocolat and Side House Rules. And those times I got what it felt like to, to, to sit there and not get up with your name and not, have, not to walk behind the cameraman, which was fascinating because I, I realised that, you know, at all the Oscar after parties, four-fifths of the people there are feeling quite, actually quite low and quite sad because they didn't win. And um, I really, you, it was quite funny to, to, to witness that, what it's like from the other side. Chocolat seems to me, maybe the side of house rules, seems to me to be the pieces that get played the most. Do you, do you actually know what gets played the most out of all your work? I do. I think, yes, I think Chocolat does get played the most. Although Cider House, the main, the main theme from Cider House also gets a lot of play. We move on to another choice, perhaps, perhaps the least known of your choices, although it was directed by a, a legendary director, Terence Malick. This is A Hidden Life, only came out last year, 2019, with music by James Newton Howard. Tell us more, Rachel. Yes, I chose this because of all the films this year that we were sort of considering when it came to sort of voting for Academy Awards. So I'm part of the, uh, the music branch. This stood out for me by miles. I found it incredibly moving. The, the main theme has this longing in it. 
And I think something must have struck a chord in him when he was writing it. I mean, I know him from um, from blockbusters, I guess, you know, whether that's Batman or Hunger Games or things like that. So this does seem a much more personal story compared to the kind of movies he'd been working on previously. So I definitely, I can definitely see what you mean where it says it must have struck a chord with him for him to yes. have signed on to this because it's not, I, I would suggest it's not normally the kind of thing that he would do or certainly hasn't been doing in recent years. Yes, no, no, I, I know what you mean. And I think, I think... I enjoy wondering, because I don't know for sure, um, what I heard coming through that music. Because I know that when it's happened to me, and those are rare and wonderful moments, and I just felt in the present, I was in the presence of that when I heard the music and saw the film. Are you ever in situations where, <laughs> where you don't actually like the film that you're working on? Yes. Um, I think I wouldn't be saying the truth if I didn't. That, you know, there are times when I struggle um, you know, and I've said, yes, I will do a project. And then the film arrives and I say, and I think, oh, you know, am I suited to this? Or it's usually or, or more like, oh, gosh, I things haven't turned out quite as I hoped it would. At which point, you know, I, I really redouble my efforts to engage with the film and find a way in. And that's hard. But usually it's absolutely fine. And then I end up, I, I end up invariably becoming much fonder of the film thinking it's actually really good you know as I go through it and then I'm upset if it doesn't do very well <laughs> and you're in a position to to make it better aren't you I mean if you don't like it before your music then you can add music to make the film a better end product absolutely yes you know you can I mean one of the big things that I can do is you know I can add momentum if if it's kind of dragging you can't make a bad scene great but oh my goodness you can do a lot uh, but it becomes very tricky when <laughs> you know, if something isn't working, because audiences are quite savvy as well. I think one of the, the things that, that I seem to feel about your choices is that less is more, actually, with a lot of them. And the music isn't overused in a lot of the films that you've chosen. And it is about where you don't use music as much as where you do use music. Yes, I think, I think that's true. It's terribly important where a piece of music comes out in a scene, as also where it comes in. Because the vacuum that's left has a visceral effect on, on the viewer. Speaking of uh, not having music, your final choice is Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Bernard Herrmann uh, did the music. And I was reading that actually, originally, Alfred Hitchcock didn't want music for the shower scene. And it was Bernard Herrmann who persuaded him to have that now legendary, stabbing, screeching violin score. Absolutely. Absolutely. How... How interesting. Yes. I mean, which is so famous, that, that, that piece of music for the Shah scene. When I think of this score, though, the scene which really stands out to me and why I chose it is not for that. It's, it's for the um, driving in the rain scene with that sort of insistent sort of small string ensemble, uh, sort of chugging, uncomfortable, anxious, biting string, complex rhythms um, that I just think was so brilliant. And it's such a bold scene and such bold music put together and it's unforgettable. Yeah, because it's Marion heading towards the Bates Motel and really not actually much has happened at this point, but you know from that music 
that yeah, something do. bad is going to happen because yeah, it's all exactly, about exactly. being unsettling, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's unsettling. And, and, you know, just it's such brilliant music. Um, Alfred Hitchcock said that 33% of the effect of Psycho was down to the music, which is a very precise figure. But I, I, I think we could probably agree with that, if not more, actually. How very generous of him. <laughs> and I think that the I was reading um, that, that it's just a string orchestra as well. You know, it's not a full symphony orchestra. It's purely strings, which adds to that. It's not something you immediately think about, but there is just something a little unsettling about that, that there's things almost missing from that music. Mm, yes. Well, I mean, I think, I think colour is incredibly important. One of the first things I really think about when I'm starting to write a film score, about what the, what, what the sound is going to be. What you leave out is often really interesting. So to have a film score with no violins at all. You know, people are going to watch the film not really understanding what they're listening to. They're just taking everything in at the same time. They're not aware of, of, say, for example, in Psycho, that it was just strings. But they're very, very conscious choices. You must hope that people re-watch the films and get more from your score the more that they watch them. Any composer was always hoping that, um, that their music will have a life, you know, and, and any filmmaker will, as part of a film or as music on its own. And so, you know, it's great. And people do rewatch films a lot, a lot more than I do, actually. Uh, I always feel that there's so many more new things to watch. Um, but yeah, you hope they do. Um, and what's the kind of average timescale for you then? Because just flipping back to A Hidden Life, I was reading that James Newton Howard recorded everything at Abbey Road with a 40-piece orchestra in a day. Now, that to me seems incredibly quick, but I don't know if that, again, if that just if that's kind of how it works and that's a fairly normal uh, timescale. Yes, it, well, I mean, it depends how much music there is. If there's between 25 and 30 minutes of music, you can record all of that in one day, depending on how you choose to record. A lot of composers like recording in sections now, so just the brass, just the strings, just the percussion, because then they have complete control afterwards in putting the elements together. But, I mean, my preference is always to record with the whole orchestra together. And, and Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann had this very close relationship. Again, it was another relationship that lasted over several films. I think there were seven films before a falling out. Um, and I think Bernard Herrmann even went onto the set, you know, when, when the movie was being filmed. So how involved do directors get when they're working with you? I mean, do, do they come to the recording? Is it much more distant, remote than that? No, directors always come to recordings. It's very rare that they don't. And I've been, you know, I worked, I worked with Jonathan Demi on three films and on each of those, I was there at the shoot quite a lot. I came on board really early and he liked me to be really involved and start writing as they were beginning to shoot. And, and I went on huge musical journeys with, with each of the three films I worked on, particularly Beloved. But interestingly, he sometimes didn't come to the recordings. He was there for some of them, but, but, but some, you know, sometimes we recorded in Paris or we recorded in London. He wanted to stay over in Nyack, New York. And there's always a danger that there's going to be a miscommunication if the director isn't actually sitting there, you know, in the, in the recording session. But in that recording session, that then gets edited into the movie, but then they might come back and say, we want extra. They do sometimes come back and say extra or they, yes. I mean, so that happened to me on Cider House Rules. I wrote a whole score. And then a month later, Lassie Halstrom came back to me and said, do you know what? I think we need another theme in there. And because I, I, I probably had about three or four themes in this huge, it's a huge film. 
So I thought, crikey. So I went back and I started writing again and I wrote two more themes and they ended up being the two main themes. And actually it was a good thing because I'd spent so much time on that film. I knew it back to front, inside out and I was immersed in that story for even longer. And, and, he, and, and Lassie was right. It, it, it made it better. Those could be the two themes that got you the Oscar nomination. <laughs> they could be. Yeah, they could be. Exactly. <laughs> and he's, I mean, he's known as... as working with ABBA back in his, his original um, days in Sweden. Yeah. And so I presume, you know, knows music and knows the music world, as did Jonathan Demme, who was you know, a huge music fan. Does that help when the director is, is um, musically minded? Um, yes. It, I mean, it can do. Sometimes a, ni- a little knowledge is dangerous, you know, and it's, it's actually not that helpful to have a director saying, you know, I really, really would like you to have a cello over this scene. <laughs> if you're thinking, no, no, that really doesn't work. I want bagpipes, Rachel. Give me bagpipes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I've had that quite recently, by the way. Oh, do we go and delve any deeper with that or do you want to move on? No, no, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll run through your films again. So we finished with Psycho. Before that, we talked about uh, Hidden Life. Um, there was also To Kill a Mockingbird, Far From the Madding Crowd and Catch Me If You Can. I'm guessing, uh, Rachel, just to finish, that that with cinema technology being so much better now and it's not just the size of the screens but also the sound systems when we go to the cinema um, that must be great for you that you know that your music's being played out in the best possible kind of Dolby Atmos um, setup you can get yes I have to say that's really true I mean the sound quality is just incredible and that's a real gift Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking us through some of your favourite soundtrack choices. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Now, if you got lost in this episode, let us know at View Entertainment on all the usual social platforms. The hashtag is Get Lost in Great Stories. And don't forget, immersing ourselves in great film at the cinema isn't just fun. Research shows it's actually good for our well-being too. So, View has partnered with Medi Cinema. Medi Cinema build and run cinemas in hospitals to help improve the lives of patients. If you'd like to find out more or support their incredible work, head over to the podcast show notes for further details. Until next week, it's goodbye for now from me, James King, and all at View Entertainment. View Entertainment.